Thank you, Randall. Children's Church, you can be dismissed at this time. As they're heading out, if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn this morning to the Gospel of Luke. If you need a Bible, there are uh, Bibles furnished in the pew in front of you. Please grab one of those because it's always better when you can kind of follow along word for word and and see and hear and take it in. So uh, by all means, grab yourself a Bible if you don't have one. If there's not one uh, in the pew in front of you. Just thump the person's ear in the next pew in front of you and ask them for one. That's quite all right. That's brotherly love. You know, I grew up with a brother. I got a lot of noogies and a lot of ear thumps and things like that. Anybody that have older siblings, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but anyways, uh, I, listen, it's a, it's a good day. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Um, I'm, I, Larry pointed out something to me. Now, it's, it's, you won't get the effect now because it's not actually in place. But for uh, quite a bit of time, I thought we was going to witness a miracle here in this Baptist church. The back pew was empty, but it's full now. I mean, we got to, at one time we had an empty back pew, and he said, man, when have you ever seen an empty back pew in a Baptist church? Uh, you know, I'm not pointing out this gaping hole, but you know, you guys can always move to the front. These are the best pews in the house, except for when I preach, sometimes I do spray. Uh, bring your own towels. Uh, have you noticed behind the gym... Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Teen room, in case you didn't know, is being built. And if you didn't see it, I encourage you to walk to that side of the gym and just kind of peer around the side. It's not the blue house, but you'll notice the sticks that are going up out there. And uh, that's exciting. I'm very excited about that. And they've done a great job this week. And uh, Lord willing, if weather stays clear, we'll continue to move forward in that project. So keep that in your prayers. Uh, just real excited about what God's doing uh, here in our midst, and, and that's a, a facility that I know uh, he will use uh, in the lives of young people, and uh, so we're looking forward to that. So keep that in your prayers. You should be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 today. We concluded our uh, last week's study in chapter 6. For those of you who are visiting, by the way, thank you for being here. Thank you for being at Community Baptist Church. Hope you feel at home. Um, and uh, we want you to know that we're glad you've chosen to worship with us today. When we do our sermons here, we do what we call exegetical Bible studies. We basically take a book of the Scriptures, and we go through the book systematically, verse by verse, line by line, in uh, context, context, context. You'll hear that said a lot here, because anytime you're reading something, you better read it in context. Uh, or you're going to miss the point. And so what we want to do here is, is expound on God's Word, God's truth, and we do that one book at a time. We're currently in the Gospel of Luke, and we are all the way over to chapter 7, uh, only a year later. Just kidding, not quite. Maybe eight months, I don't know. But anyways, we're making some progress, and today we're going to pick up our study here and um, uh, just kind of give you a quick recap. Christ has chosen His apostles He has, at this point, preached to a multitude of folks, and he's given what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, or as we know in the Gospel of Luke, the Sermon on the Plain. And he has, uh, at at this point, concluded the Sermon on the Plain. And he goes, Luke writes in chapter 7, he goes straight into this, and we're going to talk about why he goes straight into this. But if you would, just look at the text as we read the Word of God this morning. 
Chapter 7 of Luke, verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, that was the Sermon on the Plain, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a Man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. Father, I pray that you give me clarity of thought this morning. I ask that you would help me to be a vessel for your honor and your glory. Lord, I pray for our hearts that we'll have listening ears, that, Lord, our, our hearts would be attentive to what it is you would have us to learn today and, and grow from here, Lord. Lord, may we be different on our way out than when we came in. Remove distractions from our thoughts. And Lord, may we focus in worship and study this morning for your glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke places this here in the text under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. But in a casual reading, if you're not careful, you kind of miss why this is placed here. Now think about, again, the context of what you've read already in the Gospel of Luke. He's just done the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. And in that sermon, he hit on some key things and what it meant to be a learner, a follower a disciple of Christ. And this was set in contrast, if you remember, with the religious Pharisees. And remember in our study, we talked about and used as an example uh, the other uh, scripture that Christ spoke of when the one man went into the temple and he said, beating his chest proudly. I'm glad I'm not like that old sinner over there. And there was a man just on his face, would not even lift his face to look to God. And all he could do was basically beg and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. You had in that contrast one man who was humble, meek in spirit, in desperate need. And another man who was self-righteous and religious and proud. 
And that story uh, that Jesus tells there, he says that the one man went away justified, the sinner who was broken in humility. And in that Sermon on the Mount, Christ began that sermon with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And there's a truth that's found throughout Scripture, and it's this truth. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so that's the sermon that's been preached. And now Luke records for us a real live application of that sermon. This centurion embodies that message. It's no coinkydink that this happens to be there. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit's direction, here and now is they've heard this great sermon. There are people following and this, no doubt, chronologically does follow in order. And Luke doesn't always put things chronologically. A lot of times, when you go through the Gospels, don't expect it to be in chronological order. They are thematic in their writing. They're writing with a purpose. And so, if it fits in that purpose as the Holy Spirit has led them, then that fits. But don't expect it to always be A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Sometimes the stories are moved around for the sake of the thematic point. But yet in this case, we do see that it is connected with the close of the Sermon on the Plain. And now we find an example of exactly what Jesus has just preached. I mean, that's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, just imagine, you know, we, we, this morning we get this sermon and we walk out the doors and no sooner than you get to the restaurant, bam, you experience what was just taught on. That's some serious application, isn't it? That ought to, we ought to be able to embody that a little better. We ought to be able to absorb the point the preacher was making. So, here we find this is what's happened. This is what's taking place. There's some interesting things found in here, and I, I, and I want to try and hit on some of these, and hopefully we'll cover all of these this morning. There's a lot to, to work through, but... One of the things that stands out, I don't know if this stood out to you when you read through this. Can you imagine Jesus, God Himself, incarnate, was amazed at this man's faith? He was amazed. Wow. Do you know that's only mentioned twice in Scripture? where Jesus is amazed. One of them is Mark 6.6, 6, and it's in regards to He was amazed at their unbelief. And here's the other one. And in this case, He was amazed at His belief. I find that very interesting. I find it very interesting, first off, that Jesus actually uh, would use such language to describe. But uh, again, as we study through this, we'll understand better, hopefully, why this is amazing. So what about this man who amazed Jesus? Well, let's look closer at him. It says here in, in verse 1 that after concluding the sermon, he entered Capernaum, northwestern uh, section of Galilee, and a certain centurion's servant. All right, well, let's stop first at the centurion. Centurion, 
Here's a Roman soldier, probably equivalent today, maybe what we would consider a captain. Uh, by the way, centurion is from we our word century. How many century? Hundred, yes. We have a winner. Um, a hundred. Now, that's where it started in the in initial sense. Uh, this overseer, if you will, in the military, the Roman soldiers would oversee a hundred people. Now that changed. That number grew. There very well may have been, even in the context here, where maybe he had more than a hundred under his watch, but initially it was a hundred, and that's why the word stuck, and that's where the word centurion came from. So here's a centurion, and he is the captain, if you will, of this army of two platoons or who knows how many. But anyway, there's a hundred at least. And he knows what it's like. He's a man of authority. He's a man in position. But let's take a closer look at this centurion. We know he's powerful. Anyone who had the rank of centurion is a commander of soldiers. There's great power in that, great responsibility in that. He was obviously stationed somewhere around the town of Capernaum, northern district of Galilee, northwest section. He was probably the ranking officer in that area. Uh, And basically that means he would possibly even have the power and the authority that was given to him to to make certain decisions, kind of like a, a, a local emperor, if you will, in that section. He had that authority to say and to do and to request, and it would be done. But he wasn't your typical centurion. This is not your typical Roman captain. Notice, this man's kind. It says that he, uh, enter Capernaum, Jesus did, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him. Now, again, on on initial reading, that doesn't really stand out to you. Let's see if maybe I could give you some modern context. Maybe that would be like saying, um, an Israeli and a Palestinian. You know, the Romans... And the Jews weren't exactly best buddies. Uh, in fact, the Romans were seen as occupiers, and, and uh, the Jews were seen as a potential threat even to the Roman Empire. So the typical relationship, there wasn't a lot of love there. There wasn't a lot of kindness exchanged between these two. But yet we find here that this man's servant, by the way, that word servant is the Greek word doulos. Okay, and that's not an Andy Griffith song, Dooley, slip it down the holler. Y'all remember that one? Great hit. Get his hits if you haven't got that. Uh, this is doulos. This is slave. That's what the word translates to. It's a slave. And so, in those days, again, a slave was considered property. In fact, the common practice was if you had a slave who had gone ill or gone sick, you put them out of their misery. You get rid of them. You kill them. That was the common practice. I mean, it really was in that day. And yet, 
Notice the difference in this man. Notice this is a man who is kind. Though he was a powerful man and all he would have do was had to say the word and things could have happened. But not this guy. I think this man's also seeking. Notice in the text, it says a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And, you know, and I read this and, and, and he almost implies that even the, the, the servant, the slave was maybe, you know, just, just let me go. I, I, my, my days are up. I'm willing to go. I'm, I'm ready to go. And, and yet this man, he cared so much for this guy. There is a relationship here that, that's unusual in that sense. And, and he's, he's not willing he shows the kindness. But it's, I think he's seeking because even though we, we look at some of the characteristics of this guy, and that's one of the things that Luke does here is he focuses on the character, and we're going to highlight this, but I think this man's a spiritual seeker. He obviously has taken interest in the Jewish religion. How do we know that? We'll continue reading. Look at the text. When he heard about Jesus, well... The word has already begun to spread around the area. There's a guy who's, who's turning things upside down, and his name is Jesus, and he's doing some pretty amazing things around the land. And no doubt the, the Jewish folks of the area were really talking about it. Could this be the Messiah? And of course the Pharisees and the scribes, their disdain for Christ was no doubt being talked about. But it says in verse 3, So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him. He's no doubt got a little understanding of how things work in the Jewish religion. But we see this, and um, he no doubt had probably heard some, maybe even listened about some of the talk uh, that was going on around about, about Christ. But he sent these elders of the Jews to Christ to plead with him to come and heal his slave, to heal his servant. You know, for these Jewish elders to even do that shows you and me they had great respect. That's another characteristic of this guy. He obviously had a lot of respect from those people in the community, did he not? Because again, I don't know, it doesn't tell us in this text, it doesn't say if these Jewish leaders are buying into this whole Jesus being the Messiah, or are they of the cloth of these self-righteous Pharisees that think Jesus has a demon and, and he's a blasphemer and doesn't tell us, does it? doesn't really matter because they obviously respected this man enough to go and represent him. And notice what else the Scripture tells us that they did when they left. It says that when they came to Jesus, verse 4, they begged him. They begged him earnestly, saying, the one of whom you should do this, he's deserving Interesting. Again, I see a bit of a parallel here in their understanding and the man's understanding. We'll see this play out in the Scripture. 
you'll see their understanding of this man and yet see the man's own understanding of himself. They say he's des- uh, that he's deserving, yet he sees himself as unworthy. Man, what a character this guy is. I mean, what, what great qualities, what great characteristics this centurion possesses. He's an embodiment of everything Christ just talked about. He talked about being humble. He talked about loving your enemies. Here's a Roman soldier that loved his enemies enough to build him a synagogue. I don't know about you, but I'm guessing military pay back in those days was much better than it is today. This man's using some serious money to build a synagogue in his area. He's probably doing that out of love, kindness, compassion. What a great leader. Well, he was respected. He's also loving. Again, you've got to realize the army considered the Hebrew nation rebellious and difficult. They were enemies. Yet he loved them. He's generous. He builds them this synagogue. Even though, think about this, he's not even allowed to be a member because he's a Gentile. So it's not self-serving. I'll build this nice temple so I can go in and get the best seat. Just call me Front Row Joe. I'm Centurion. No, he didn't build that for himself. He's not even allowed. He's considered pagan. He's a Gentile. He's a dog. But yet, these men come to Christ and they beg Him earnestly that the one whom He should do this for was deserving. He loves our nation. Wow. And has built us a synagogue. So verse 6, Jesus went with them. And when He was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to Him, saying to Him, Lord, do not trouble Yourself. For I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. Hmm. You know, this man's also very insightful. I mean, he told Jesus, just say the word. He knew enough about Christ to know that he had the ability, he had the authority, he had the power to literally just speak it, and it could happen. That's strong faith. That's some serious faith. And this man, he believed that. Why else would he he send out these Jewish elders, and then at this point sends out some friends? I'm sure he thought about it. You know what? Those Jewish elders went out and talked to Jesus. I can't let him come to my house. He's a rabbi. I'm unclean. He can't come into my house. You know, I'm just—I'm not even worthy to go out and meet this man. I mean, can you imagine what he's wrestling with? We see it played out here in the scripture. But it's a—it's a what a great reflection upon self. A, a, a man who who recognizes he's undeserving. And church, let me just pause for a second. Do you know that is us? I mean, 
we live in a society that gives you quite the opposite message. You get a constant opposite message of what the Scripture gives you. The message you get today is, you're good enough. You deserve it. You're not a bad person. You're really a good person deep down inside. Let's, let me give you some self-help things. Yet the Scripture says there's none righteous. Not even one. There's none good. No, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not self that I need help with. Self needs to die. (laughs) I mean, let's just be honest. Self needs to die. Self's what gets you and me in trouble. I need more of the Savior. I need to yield my life to Him. I don't need to yield my life to me. Me has, me does plenty of bad things. Me, me does a lot of things that me ends up getting upset with me because me's did it. That's not good English, but you followed me, I hope. I'm crucified with Christ. If you're a Christian, you are crucified with Christ. That means you're dead. Dead to sin. Dead to self. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's how I live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And we as Christians miss that vital, important truth. And so we're, we got some fire insurance. I believe in Jesus. I trust Jesus as my Savior. I'm not going to go to hell. So therefore, I'm just going to live for me. But I remind you, if you believe what Christ has said, if you believe the message of the gospel, then He tells us, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So who do you belong to? Are you a slave to sin? Self? Or are you a slave to righteousness? Who are you yielding your members to? Who are you yielding your life to? It's an important truth. And so, we continue on here and we see that this centurion, he was very insightful. He got it. He knew all that Jesus had to do was say the word. He he tells him, he says, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He, He gets this idea of authority. In power. And so he's equating that to the person of Jesus and in the, in the application of healing, who can heal? Only God. And yet, he recognizes this about Jesus. And he knows 
He's the God of creation. He, all he has, has to do is say the word and it can happen. That's how humble and, and, and strong this man's faith is. He believes that. He knows this. Spiritual insight. He somehow understood that all of creation was under Jesus' command, even illness and life and death. Pastor Leith Anderson made the following comment. He says, such spiritual insight is hard to explain but common to see. Some people look at Jesus and see an ordinary man. They read the Bible and it's just an ordinary, if not boring, book. Others see in Jesus the Son of God. They sense the power of God. To them, the Bible is the living Word of God. Some people come to church and experience music, which is a combination of harmony and melody and words. It's a performance. Others experience God. You can see it on their faces. You can hear it in their voices. There are people of centurion spiritual insight. Some people check out the church and find it to be another very human organization, like a club, like a school, like an association. Others can tell that it's the supernatural body of Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit and the instrument of God on earth. Some people hear a sermon. It's just another speech. Persons of spiritual insight hear the voice of God and learn, learn divine truth. Some are like the centurion, persons of spiritual insight. This centurion, Luke points out, he's he's a man of power, he's, he's a man who's kind, he's a man who no doubt was seeking, he's respected, he's loving, he's generous, he's humble, he's insightful. But notice... Notice what the text goes on and says. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He's amazed at him. And turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. I don't believe the centurion was there at the Sermon on the Plain. But wow, you talk about a life application lesson. To hear, to see the qualities that are found in this man. Exemplified. And yet we who have come to that place of brokenness in spirit, those of us who are, who are followers of Christ, those of us who claim to be Christians, is that the fruit of the Spirit in our life? Well, I hope so. And if it's not, then Lord help us to to humbly reflect upon some of these things that we're looking at and studying through. And you know where you're at before a holy God. You know where you're at in your walk. You know if you're yielding to the Spirit of God or if you're walking in the flesh, walking after the flesh. So where are you? You know, this isn't the 
only account of this story in the Scriptures. Turn, if you would, in your Bible over to Matthew. Because we want to get the full picture again. Context, context, context. We want to see the whole thing here. And, uh, and this raises a very interesting point. So if you would, turn to Matthew 8. Matthew 8, verse 5. Now, I hope you've been paying attention because I'm going to give you a quiz question here in just a second. And uh, so let's take a look in Matthew 8, verse 5, and let's see what happens. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come to heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I haven't found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And a servant was healed that same hour. Now, question. I thought the centurion sent representatives. He didn't go. But that passage says the centurion went. So I'm your co-worker, and I meet you at the cooler, and I say, hey, I, I was reading this story the other day in the Scriptures about a centurion. And in one passage, it says very clearly that he sent some representatives But in the other story, it says he went. That's a contradiction. How are you going to answer that? What's the answer to that? I mean, all you got to have is about a third grade reading level, and you can read this story and and, and see something's, something's not lining up here. How's this fit? And I can assure you, if you haven't gone to college yet, or you're planning to go to college, or your mom goes to college, or whatever, whoever goes to college, if you go in that class, and you land that right professor, he loves these kind of texts. He loves these kind of scriptural things, because he wants to get a hold of you Christians. And he wants to drive it home. You see, you can't trust that book. That book ain't true. It's got contradictions. It's full of contradictions. Right here's one. Explain it, Christian boy. Christian girl. Go ahead, explain it to me. Explain it to the whole classroom. Now, I hope and pray you don't get a professor that obnoxious. But trust me, there are some out there. There are some out there. And they thrive to try and hack away and destroy your faith. And you come to a text like this, and let's be honest. I'll be honest with you. When I first was preparing for this sermon, this one was a tough one. 
And I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to go to my trusty commentaries and I'm going to find me a good answer in this one. I just tell you the truth, they stunk. <laughs> Didn't none of them have an answer for it. The first, when I first started going through looking and trying to find all the ones that I looked to, you know, there's good help. They would no help. And I'm glad there weren't any help because you know what I did? Hit my knees. And I should have started there. But I began to pray. God, I need this answer. You don't have to give it to me. That's his, look, you know, I love Dean's quote all the time, uh, Deuteronomy 28, I think 29, 29. I knew there was a repeat in there. You probably just need to repeat a little more. I'll remember it. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the the mysteries belong to God. And and that's a great passage to hang to. But I have to be honest with you. I was on my knees. I'm like, Lord, I'm preaching this, and this is troublesome. Can you help me out with this? And I'm sure if you're an honest student of the Word and you go through, you're going to come across passages sometimes and you're going to have friends and you're going to have co-workers at the cooler that are going to pick away when they find these kind of things. And as your pastor, I don't want you to be shaken in your faith. Because there's one thing I knew long before I even faced this dilemma and I was, it was reiterated when I got to this dilemma that there is an answer. And the answer I knew was, number one, that the Word's infallible. Okay? It's true. And I know truth can't have holes poked in it. If it, was, if it, if it can have holes poked in it, it's not truth. Now, there will be attacks on truth, but truth can't have holes poked in it. So I knew that. I knew there's some way this fits, some way this works. Somehow, this is, there's an answer. And I'm not going to tell you, you're going to have to go home and find it. Just kidding, just kidding. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that. All right. But here's the thing. The more I looked at these two accounts, the more I prayed about it, and I began to, again to look, check different resources, try and compare thoughts and ideas. There are a lot of theories out there, I will say that. There are several theories out there as to how this fits. And that part you will have to search out to determine for yourself where you believe that truth is. Now, I believe the truth, and I'm going to share what I believe to be the reconciliation of this text, Luke and Matthew and the accounts. I'm going to share that with you. But I'll give you one example that I heard, and and I thought, you know what, I could kind of maybe see that. For example, the Speaker of the House, he comes out to his little podium, he makes a statement On behalf of who? Interactive part. What? President. Thank you. President. He represents the president. He goes out on his behalf. He represents the president. And when he makes a statement, the journalists will sometimes put that in as a direct quote from the president. That's not uncommon. Read your newspapers. And a lot of times, President Obama said... Okay, And sometimes it's the representative said, but sometimes that's how it's articulated. And none of us have a problem with that. When we read it, we know it's a representation. So when he speaks, he speaks on his behalf. And, 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 and so, you know, some people try to say, well, here's what was going on in this case. But again, Matthew says the centurion went. Or it seems that way. Now, you need to understand something that's also very, 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 very important. Matthew is writing with a different thematic emphasis. He's writing with a different intent, a different purpose. 
His focus is on the nationality. This is a centurion. So his emphasis is not going to be, and this is why he doesn't include the messengers that are involved in the story. Because his emphasis, if you know anything about Matthew and his writing, he's predominantly to a Jewish audience, and he'll emphasize the women in the lineage lineage of Christ. He's, He's focusing on some of these things. And so here in this account in Christ's life and ministry, this is a very important thing that Matthew wants to hit on. This is a Roman. That's his emphasis. Very important to our understanding and interpretation. Luke, on the other hand, he is writing to focus on the man's character. Because the character, again, this is the embodiment of the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew's isn't found in the chronological order, though I believe it's somewhat close because it's found in the text within three parables and shortly after the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke, his emphasis is on the character. Matthew's was on the nationality. Very, very important. Well, didn't really mean to spend a whole lot of time on the side note, but, but I hope this is, this is good because here's my point. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. And this man that's highlighted in today's text was a man of amazing faith. He knew the authority was in Christ's Word. And church, we live in a day where quite honestly, those who name the name of Christ don't have a lot of faith in the Word of God. They don't put a lot of emphasis on the authority of God's Word. How do I know that? Because of how they're living their life. If I really believe this is truly God's Word, how different should my life look? And let's just be honest about it. Those naming the name of Christ, we don't put a lot of emphasis on the authority of God's Word. And so I think this is important because what's under attack in the beginning of time and what's under attack in our time? The Word of God. Can you trust it? Can you believe it? Can you put your faith in it? And so I do think this is an important side note. Let me... Sum it up. It's noon. Let me sum it up. Instead of giving you my jumbled thoughts, I want to read to you a direct quote. And I think this will help bring some clarification to you. Let me just say it this way. Both accounts are true. Matthew's account is true. The centurion went. And Luke's account is true. The representatives went on his behalf. Now, how does that reconcile? How does that fit? Follow the story, if you will, when we piece the puzzle together. This is from the Master's Seminary Journal. The scene could have unfolded as follows. The centurion had a dying servant who was dear to him. Having heard of Jesus' healing ministry... This was not his first entry into the city, by the way. Look in Luke 4.31. We know he's already been in Capernaum. So we know he knows his reputation. We know he knows about this man's ability to heal. And having believed in him, he knew that the master could heal the boy, the servant, the slave. He knew he could heal him. 
Yet the boy was paralyzed by illness and great agony and unable to be moved. And again, some of the Greek construct, the Greek words that are used, give us this indication about the possibility of paralyzation, the agony, so forth and so on. He obviously couldn't be moved. He couldn't get up and go, so he has to come to him. The centurion, being a Gentile and understanding that Jesus was from God, could not see himself going directly to Jesus to ask on behalf of this servant, nor having Jesus come to his home. He's in a, he's in a dilemma. He could, however, summon some Jewish leaders of the synagogue, which he built at his own expense, to go on his behalf. They did. And Jesus began to return to the house with them. As Jesus came near, the centurion was horrified that Jesus might actually come under his roof. So he sent some friends to explain the case. As they went and engaged Jesus, the centurion, while watching, couldn't contain himself any longer. He overrode his conviction about not being worthy to go and went, away, and went anyway. When he reached Jesus, he stated directly the seriousness of the matter. Which, by the way, look at both accounts. They both are in the first-person dialogue in both scriptural accounts. First person. So he goes, having... Um, uh, when, he, when coming against his conviction, Jesus, having heard once already... Uh, um, let, me, let me back this up. When he reached Jesus, he stated directly the seriousness of the matter. Perhaps to justify his coming against his conviction, Jesus, having heard once already that he need not be present to heal the boy, elicited the response directly from the lips of the man himself. Now, having heard it twice, once indirectly and once directly, he turned to those who had been following him and made the statement comparing the centurion's faith to any that he had seen thus far among the people of Israel. His people who should have recognized him. The the Israeli people should have known. Yeah, here's a Gentile man who knew. He made it once and then emphatically repeated it. The unabashed faith of this Gentile centurion prompted Jesus to teach about the nature of those who will enter the kingdom and those who will be left out. People of faith will be included. People who depend on heritage and works will be excluded. Isn't that exactly what he's been doing in his earthly ministry? Comparing these self-righteous Jewish leaders, the keepers of the word that should have known and understood but have rejected. And that's why he said, they'll be cast out into outer darkness with gnashing and teeth. And those from the east and the west will be coming in to the kingdom and dining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, people who depend on heritage and works will be excluded. Finally, he responded directly to the centurion that he could return home, assured that what he had requested had been accomplished, just as he believed it would. Now, whether or not he tarried or went home, it's not stated, but his messengers did return to find the boy had, in fact, been healed that very hour. Gang, you have a real enemy that's going to shoot fiery darts. He's going to try and destroy your faith. And it's the same tactic that was used in the beginning of time. If I can just get you to doubt the Word of God, 
If I can just get you to doubt it. And I got you. That's the enemy's tactic. He hasn't changed that. Study to show yourself approved. Gang, this is why we... Part of the reason we gather corporately is not just to get a feel-good sermon and go home and, oh, bless Jesus, that was a good day today. I feel good. Let's put on the pot rose. Ah, sweet tea out in the sunshine. I mean, that's great if you do that. That's the end of your day. That's wonderful. But you know what? That's not why we gather together. We gather together as believers to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, to go and to reach people with the truth. Because you know what? If you believe this book, people will die and go into an eternity. It's separated from the goodness and grace of God forever. And you have the answer. You have the hope. You have the cure. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. This man had some... He, he, he was strong in his faith. And it wasn't him. Notice, your faith is only as good as the object is in. Let me say that again. Your faith is only as good as the object is in. If you have faith, there's no God. Your faith is only as good as that statement. You better hope there's no God. If your faith's in Allah is the only true God and Muhammad's the only true prophet, you better hope that's correct. If I'm going to step on a lake that's frozen over, I'm probably hoping it's uh, January somewhere up in the Midwest, not in LaGrange in October. You follow me? You're only as good as the object that you're putting your hope in. My hope's in Jesus Christ. My hope is in the Word made flesh who came and dwelt among us. And gang, it holds up to scrutiny. It holds up to testing. It holds up to these criticisms and critiques and fiery darts that the enemy shoots. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Let's pray. Father, thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Thank you for your truth. And Lord, what an example we see in this centurion. Amazing faith. Amazing faith. Because he knew in the one whom he had believed. And Lord, as a minister of the gospel, as a follower of Christ, Lord, I'm confident, not in myself by any means, I'm confident in the one whom I have believed. And I know that you're able to to finish this work that you've begun. And Lord, I just pray for the other followers that are here today, those who are learners of Christ, as we have heard this term used explicitly here in this Sermon on the Plain. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that their faith be strengthened. I pray, Lord, that their confidence in You grows. I pray that self would die and the Savior would live. Innocent through us. Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. Christ came to give life and give it more abundantly. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that's never experienced the saving grace 
Lord, I pray today would be their day of salvation. Lord, if there's anyone here, maybe listening via the radio, that has never come to a place of humbleness, of brokenness, poor in spirit, to say, God, forgive me. I know I've been suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. I've been doing my own thing. I've been living my own way. I've been following after self and deceit. And yet, Lord, today I, I know there's, there's just something about this message. There's truth. I, I know it. And, 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 Lord, I know that's you. And, I, and I, Lord, forgive me. If there's anyone here today that would, by faith, turn from their sin... And turn to the Savior. Jesus Christ calls you to Himself. He says, whosoever will, let them come. Maybe you need to come today. And I'm not speaking about coming and walking down an aisle. If you want to do that, that's great. You do it. But I'm talking about coming to the person, the only person who can save your soul, who can give you eternal life because it's His life to give. That's the person, Jesus Christ. Surrender to Him today. Put your faith and trust in the death and the burial and the resurrection that Christ has given on your behalf. You see, we all fall short. We all have sinned. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And if we got what we deserve, we deserve death. We've offended our, our Creator. We've turned our back on the Holy God who's given us life and breath, and yet He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so perhaps today's your day. Is the Spirit of God talking to you? Is He drawing you? Is He telling you? Just, just give up. Just surrender. Surrender your life to me. My yoke is light. You're trying to do this in your own strength. That's heavy. Self-righteousness won't get you there. Belief and faith in the wrong object will leave you wanting. But Jesus said, whoever comes to Him and drinks will never thirst. Those that eat will never go hungry again. He is everything you need. Will you turn to Him today in saving faith and surrender your life? Receive Christ. He said, To as many as receive Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God. You say, well, preacher, I I don't know really how to do that. What What do I need to do? Just humble yourself. Turn from your sin. And call upon Jesus Christ. It's the only name given amongst men to be saved. Lord, forgive me. I've sinned. And I believe, I, I, I truly trust that you are who you claim to be. I believe you came to this, this earth, God incarnate, born of a virgin. I believe you lived this life sinless, perfection. And yet you laid down your life to pay the penalty that I couldn't pay. You took my sin upon the cross at Calvary and you paid my penalty for me. And now I'm justified before God. I've been declared right because you said it. Because you did it. Because you paid it in full. You said it's finished. And three days later, you rose from the dead victorious over death. And you offer eternal life to anyone 
who shall come and receive. Anyone who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And today, Lord, by faith, I call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Save me, Lord. Save me. If you prayed that, if that's your... If that's where you are, if God has truly brought you to that place, salvation's of the Lord, and He cannot lie. The authority is in His Word. These things I've written unto you who believe, those of you who believe on the name of Jesus Christ, and that you may continue to believe. These things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know it, Christian. He wants you to know it. Because it's a done deal. Jesus did it all. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you for uh, the followers of Christ. Help us to truly be learners. May we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we'll give you the praise. Because you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name. Amen.